Uh, go ahead and follow along in your Bibles in John chapter 12. Uh, you might immediately think, well, that's an odd place to be. That's not the end of John. That's not the crucifixion. But you'll, it'll make sense when we get there. Because it is a crucifixion passage. And I want to talk tonight about how Jesus was crucified. That is a victory that was secured. A victory secured. So John 12, 27 to 36. I'll read and pray and we will take a look. John 12. These are the words of God. Now is my soul troubled. This is verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Our Father, most holy God, we have gathered tonight to remember the great day of Jesus' crucifixion, and we do so knowing that it is the fulcrum on which the entire world pivots. We call it good because we know that ultimately it was good, horrific, but good, gruesome, yet victorious. As we look to your word and ponder anew what you, the Almighty, can do, we ask that your spirit would aid us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a, a lot of scholarly debate, uh, a tremendous amount of debate in scholarly circles surrounding the cross of Christ, what we call the atonement. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? Um, what did the cross actually accomplish for us? What's more important, the fact that he was our vicarious substitute or that he won the victory over Satan, sin, and death? And do we even have to choose between those two? What about the results of the cross? For whom did Christ die? Theologians have debated that for 500 years. For whom did Christ die? Was it the elect or was it the world? Um, and speaking of the world, why does it matter that a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth ended up on a Roman cross anyway. What did the Romans gain by crucifying him, if anything? And what about the Jews, his fellow countrymen? What did they have to gain? The fact remains that these issues can be dealt with by returning to the Gospels and let them telling the story, tell the story of Jesus. Actually, what a novel idea. Go back to the Bible. <laughs> uh, what is it that they, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do they tell us and emphasize about the cross? And what about Jesus? What about his own very words? What does he have to say about the cross and what he's doing in his own actions? So when we go back to the Bible, we learn very quickly that arguing, arguing about different aspects about the cross is like arguing which puzzle piece is most important. 
they're all important, right? They're all important for in putting the pieces together, we actually have the fuller picture. Now that said, there is, there is one aspect to the cross that I, I think is oftentimes ignored, even in Reformed theology, but it's something that's ignored. And that's because much of Christian theology here in the West is basically reduced down to this. Jesus got punished because all of us were being bad. <laughs> and that's sort of the way people think of it. We were all a bunch of bad people, bad sinners, and someone had to take the rap, and Jesus did that. And that's, that's about as far as our atonement theory goes, how we view the atonement. Now, be, to be sure, there is something what we call penology or punishment involved. Jesus did take our punishment, which means that his death is our death. Um, if one of the clearest passages in the New Testament is Romans 8.3, it speaks of Christ's substitution. Listen to this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus was, in, and kids, you should know this, so make sure you, you understand this. Jesus was an actual human male. Okay, He was a little boy who grew up to be a man. He was an actual human male, and, uh, and on an actual cross, and in, the, and, and in the body of this action, human, actual human male who actually died, that moment, what we call Good Friday, God condemned sin. God condemned sin, that's what the Bible says. So the cross is absolutely the place where sin and death is condemned, and sin and death is defeated. So... The, the cross is absolutely the place where sinners who have transgressed the law of God, they find their just condemnation dealt with. That's why two verses before that, Romans 8.1, the great verse about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and the reason is because Jesus experienced the condemnation of sin on the cross for us. But there is another aspect to the cross I think that needs to be emphasized that is, if we're going to have the courage to listen to the Bible and let it explain to us what it means. The other aspect is sometimes called Christus Victor. And in a Latin phrase, it just means the victory of Christ. That's one puzzle piece of the cross, the victory of Christ. Christ secured a victory on the cross. The cross is where he secured the victory for his people, victory over the accuser, victory over death, victory over sin and idolatry, and victory over all of the perpetrators who shamefully sentence him to the most gruesome and hideous of deaths, death by asphyxiation, um, asphyxiation on a Roman wooden cross. Um, it was a brutal, torturous form. The Romans, we know, didn't invent it, but the Persians really go back to them, and they're the ones who kind of who did it, but the Romans perfected it. The Romans knew how to kill people in a way that caused the most suffering possible, and the cross was one of them. On which, of course, millions of Jews were, in the Jewish-Roman wars, were hung on crosses, sometimes for miles. Uh, absolutely torturous experience. And uh, they would put a little seat there that you would try to, if you could pick yourself up by the ankles, which had nails in them, you could try to, to rest. But in resting, you're your arms are also suspended there on the cross. And it was, it was absolutely gruesome and hideous death. So what do we think about John 12? Well, if you want to follow along, I'm just going to kind of summarize that text. Now, 
the Gospel of John itself is, is full of various imagery. And if you remember all the way back at the very start, it's that John tells us that there is cosmic significance to this Jesus Christ. There's cosmic significance. He said in, in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Remember, in, in the beginning was the Word. And when you hear the phrase, in the beginning, you should have two texts in mind, John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1. And that's because Jesus is going way back to explain, or excuse me, John is going way back to explain who Jesus is. So Jesus is God from before time began, which means that everything he does on earth as this tabernacle who has turned flesh has this cosmic and global significance. So from the very beginning, John says, in the beginning was the word. And the rest of that follows is all in the context of John trying to emphasize that what Jesus has done is a massive, global, universal, worldwide thing. Uh, what Jesus has done is colossal and much, much larger than our tendency to reduce it down to, usually we reduce it down to a mere personal transaction. So we get to go to heaven when we die. So, which wouldn't be inherently wrong to say, well, why did Jesus die for sins? Well, so I could go to heaven someday. That's true, but that's one small piece of the puzzle. There is a lot more to it. And so John essentially presents to us a Jesus that has the power to deal with all other puny and tawdry powers found on the earth, including, but certainly not limited to, Rome and her claims of divinity. Uh, the same can be said, of course, of Washington, D.C. So take, for example, you remember the story of the woman at the well in John 4. Toward the end, in verse 42, the Samaritans respond to, this, to the woman, because the woman goes back and tells everybody, hey, I found the Messiah. You know what they say? They say, well, guess what? Uh, we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Now, what an odd thing to say. This is the Messiah, the promised one, the Jewish Messiah, no less. Yeah, yeah, we know. He's the Savior of the world. There's a reason for that. Not just the Savior of Israel. They're in Samaria. They're in, they're in the north part. They are hate, Samaritans were hated by Jews. They confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So John is obviously emphasizing this. So the Savior of the world, who is also the creator of the world, has come now to Jerusalem. By the way, the triumphal entry. Talked about this last week. Uh, that's at the beginning of John 12. So Jesus is in Jerusalem having this conversation. And what's interesting that John emphasizes as guess who's present in Jerusalem during Passover? The world. He mentions the Greeks specifically. The Greeks are actually out there. We know from verse 20, the Greeks and other people from other nations, they were seeking Jesus. Uh, I heard a scholarly debate recently. It was fascinating. Did the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul, did Saul ever know about Jesus? He would have been alive at the same time. Did he ever know about him? And I kind of think, I look at a text like this, he probably did. He probably had heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. The Greeks show up and they're asking about Jesus. So I, I'm pretty confident that his name got thrown around. You know, they're having dinner one night. Did you hear about this Jesus guy up in Galilee? Yeah, we've heard he's done some crazy things. Word gets around fast. Either Anyway, so... After they seek Jesus, the Greeks are, the world is trying to find Jesus, essentially, because remember, God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? John 3, 16. Um, they're trying to find him, and the first thing Jesus does is says, well, you know what? 
Um, there's this immediate call to lose one's life if you want Jesus. If you want Jesus, you have to lose your life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 26. So if the nations want to see who Jesus is, they're going to have to see him as the uh, seed that's planted in the ground. That's verse 24. And this seed, we know, will burst forth into a harvesting of the nations, but it's only done after his death and his resurrection victory. So now we're at our passage. Um, verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus' soul is troubled, but this is his purpose, he says. Jesus prays and asks the Father to glorify his name in Christ's work, and a voice comes from heaven. Um, interestingly enough, there's, the only other time we know about a voice coming from heaven is at his baptism. But now we have it. There's another voice coming from heaven. Uh, and this voice um, is a response. Verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now the crowd heard it, but surmised that it was thunder. So if you ever hear thunder outside, maybe it's God speaking. <laughs> maybe trying to get your attention. Uh, what, an, what an interesting thing, though. They heard thunder, but it was the voice of God. Some, though, in verse 29 perceived that an angel had spoke to him. But here's, here's part of the point that John gets at. Look, when it comes to Jesus, follow him or kill him. You decide, but you will never be permitted to just observe him. You'll never be permitted to just stand, stand, stand it away at a distance and, oh, okay, that's Jesus. He is, this is head-on collision with Jerusalem. He is going there. He, he, he says, lose your life. If you, want, if you want me, you must follow. If you want to follow me, you have to lose your life. But you're either going to follow me or I'm going to be put to death, but you're not going to be ambivalent. There's no room for that. So verse 30, Jesus explains that the voice was there for them, not him. And then he links the hour of his death. John always talks about this hour, my hour, my hour. He's talking about the hour of the cross. He links the hour of his death to something global in verse 31. Don't miss this, because this is Dat Postmill if there ever is anything. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, right? Not later. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 31. I'm going to come back to that. So the, the accuser's covenantal rule and his blinding of the nations is now coming to a screeching halt. Now he's cast out. The God of this age, that's 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is being cast out. Jesus will be lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And uh, if you remember that story from the book of Numbers, the, the snakes are coming and attacking Israel as a judgment, and Moses holds up the bronze snake. And if they look to the snake, they'll be, the bronze snake, they'll be saved. And Jesus is like that bronze serpent lifted up. That's what he's making the connection to. And um, that same moment when he's lifted up, it will be the judgment of the Satan, the, the, the accuser, and the world. And simultaneously, he says in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So John tells us in verse 33 that he says this to show what kind of death he's going to die. Now, I love this editorial comment by John in verse 33. He just says it. To show by what kind of death he was going to die. So if you want to ask the question, what does the cross mean? What does it accomplish? Well, John says it right here. What does it accomplish? Now, there's questions in verse 34. The Son of Man dying? 
They didn't have a category for that. They didn't even really know who the Son of Man was, ultimately, um, though he stared them in the face. Jesus switches metaphors and starts talking about light. He's the light among them who's going to be extinguished for three days. And as a result, they need to walk in the light right now before the darkness overtakes them. Verse 35, this light and darkness thing is a, is a very popular imagery in the Gospel of John. So he recaps his instructions in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So if you believe on Jesus, you are a son of the light. So what ought, what ought we to conclude from this passage about the cross of Christ? Now, when we stop to listen to the Bible, we find that Jesus and John both explain the magnitude and the importance of the cross. Jesus draws on several Old Testament themes. The Gospel writers do it all the time. This, in this case, he talks about the bronze serpent in the wilderness. But he's doing it to explain his own actions. Jesus takes the Bible, the Old Testament, and says, this is what I'm doing. And he, he sort of just tells them, this is how I'm functioning. This is what I'm doing. The kingdom of God is here. This is what the whole Old Testament spoke of me. It's pointing to what I'm doing here right now. So there's this pressure point taking place during his hour, namely this convergence of evil, sin, and death, and simultaneously the love of God in Christ. And this is the moment we've been waiting for. The world is about to change forever. A new creation is going to be unleashed. Things will no longer be the same. And why will they no longer be the same? Because Christ has won the victory. But what is he winning exactly? Is this some weird game? What does the cross actually accomplish? Why, why would we even call it a victory? Well, Paul tells us, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 2.8, there's this interesting uh, verse it says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had the Jewish and Roman leaders understood that Jesus is in fact wisdom incarnate, had they known that they were planting this seed in the ground, the seed of his body into the ground, right? They're trying to bury him, burying it under their own misguided wrath and their own self-consuming fury, planting this seed of their own demise, no less, if they knew that, that that's what they were doing, they would not have done it. If they knew, they wouldn't have done it. They plotted their own collapse. They tried to topple Jesus, but ended up Jesus toppled them. And why is that? Well, it's because of what the cross means. The cross, according to Jesus here, and according to John, the storyteller, is where the world is judged. Now is the judgment of the world, he says. All of you know John 3.16 right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, uh, whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who remembers what happens after John 3.16? <laughs> For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. <laughs> so um, why is there no need to condemn the world? 
because it's already condemned, right? There's no, Jesus doesn't need to bring condemnation. It's, it's already condemned. What needs to happen is not condemnation, that's already there. What needs to happen is a defining moment of glory, a place where all of this can be dealt with, all of the condemnation. Jesus didn't heap more condemnation on the world, it was already there. What did he come to do? Deal with it. Mop it up, essentially. There needed to be a place where judgment can occur and clarity can be had. He's the light. They're in darkness. A place like the cross where God will do business with mankind in such a way as to drive a wedge through the mass and the mess of neutrality and apathy. Follow me, kill me. You may not just observe me. That's the, that's the answer. See, nations are drawn together and healed at the very place where all worldly power and all worldly wisdom is finally and fully renounced. That's the place of the cross. You just think of our nation right now. Pride doesn't even begin to describe it, but it's a pretty good word. Maybe high-handed pride would help. So Jesus says the cross is the judgment of the world, but it's also the place where the ruler of the world, the Satan, the, the accuser, is cast out. And I want you to hear this because many Christians today, if you were to ask them who's in charge of the world, they'll tell you Satan. And try that next time you're at a grocery store and uh, you just have a conversation. Strike it up and say, who do you think's in charge of the world right now? I mean, some might say Fauci, but, uh, or the CDC or the who, I don't know. Um, but uh, especially Christians, if you know someone's a Christian, who's in charge of the world? Most people will say Satan. And they will cite... First, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the mind. Well, it's actually the God of this age, Greek translation, but there's a reason that age was ended. And why did it end? Because of all these verses I'm about to tell you. Several places describe the end of Satan's unrelenting impact on the stage of the world history. So here's, here's what we have. He has been disarmed, defeated, and triumphed over. That's Colossians 2, Revelation 12, and Mark 3. He has fallen, that's Luke 10, and was thrown down out of heaven, that's Revelation 12. By the way, he was thrown out of heaven during Christ's ministry. He no longer has access to heaven to accuse like he had done when Job was around a long, long, long time ago. For the early Christians, Satan was crushed under their feet, Romans 6, 16. He has no authority over Christians at all, Colossians 1.13. Jesus tied him up, binding him so that the nations could no longer be deceived. That's Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 11, and Revelation 20. Satan has been judged, John 16, 3. Excuse me, John 16, 11. And, as we just saw, he's been cast out. 1 John 5, 18 says that he can't touch a Christian. All of his works have been destroyed. That's 1 John 3, 8. Satan has nothing. That's John 14, 30. James says that when you resist him, he flees. John 4, uh, James 4, 7. He is alive on planet Earth, but he is a bound and defeated enemy, moping around in his own bitterness. Satan is a helminth, one of my favorite ways to describe him. A helminth, by the way, is a parasitic worm. He is a defeated foe who holds no power right now in the binding of the nation, blinding of the nations because Christ has won the victory. Christ has subjugated him. So what did the cross accomplish? It, it accomplished the judgment of the world, Driving a wedge in neutrality and apathy. You can't just be apathetic about Christ. You have to decide. 
he has cast out the ruler of the world. One more thing. Look at John 12, 32. Jesus said that when he's lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Now, I take this to mean that the cross is now the integration point where healing and salvation now flows to the end of the, world, end of the earth. It's, it is at the, it's there at the cross where our gaze has to go. It's there at the cross where the nations must look if they are to be healed and delivered. You see, the cross is the place where judgment and deliverance takes place. It's where the warmth of light emanates into the dark and cold world. It's the complete and total victory of Christ because it's the means by which men are delivered from their idols. Don't miss that. I'll say it again. It's the, complete and t- the cross is the complete and total victory of Christ because it itself is the means by which men are delivered from their idols. When the Bible talks about our sins... It couches that definition inside the transgression of the law of God. But what about sin, capital S? Think about this. Just think like sin proper, capital S, sin itself. Not sin inside you, the thoughts, the idolatry, those things. But what about sin outside of you, capital S? What exactly is it? Now, from one angle, sin is simply this, it's this um, nefarious and villainous idolatry that we humans give ourselves over to. It's a power that's out there that we sort of give, give to it, right? It's this idol that we erect in our hearts and our lives, and it's really not that powerful. Idols, God makes fun of idols all the time. The book of Psalms in a couple places, Isaiah tells funny jokes about idols. But sin is this powerless thing that we give ourselves to, but, but because we've decided to go our own autonomous ways, we've caged ourselves inside of its elusive um, pretend power, if you, say, if you will. Um, nations who start worshiping statism or idolatry in, in various forms, it's really powerless. You know, all the gods, remember the, what was it, Dagon, the, the god that the Philistines took the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant and the, their god falls over? <laughs> and, Whoa, no one expected that. And it's like God just sort of like pushed it and it fell. And, but they, some, they gave Dagon this power. They gave it this statue power that really had none at all. But they enslaved themselves to it. That's what sin does. And part of what John's getting at is in his cosmic story of Jesus is that the cross shatters the grip of, autonom- of the autonomous powers that humans constantly engross themselves in. The cross breaks it. Idolatry is like a vice grip. It just latches on and it won't let go. And the cross breaks this power. It destroys the grip of sin on mankind and it liberates us to be the humans that God has called us to be. So, finally, at the cross, the victory was secured. At the cross, the slaves were liberated. At the cross, the power of sin was broken. At the cross, the judgment of the world was issued. At the cross, the love of God was murdered so that you and I could be adopted into the family of God. At the cross, Satan himself was cast out. At the cross, the world was forever changed because Christ himself had won the victory. And that victory came about on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, exhausting all of the pretend powers of Satan, sin, and death, and idolatry. It's sort of, I, I love the... the um, the Avengers moment when Thor yells, is that the best you can do? Like that's 
what Jesus is saying on Easter morning. Is that the best? Is, you, is that all you can do? The worst form of death and bury me? Is, is that it? Is that all you have? Jesus exhausted it and he won the victory. But for tonight, it is Good Friday and we cast our gaze on the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in your sovereign plan, Christ became a man. And he became a man in such a way as to be completely and entirely obedient to you and, and to your law, to, to your will. And of course, what happens when that obedience enters into a world of disobedience? Well, the disobedience likes to think it will win. But of course, we know that the death of Christ was the undoing of the powers of sin and death. So we thank you that we have the hope of Easter to look forward to in just three days. And we confess with the Apostles' Creed, and we confess that Christ, was, Christ died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. So help us to keep our gaze where it belongs. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.